As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, thank you for joining us this week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, where I think we've got an interesting discussion today. Michael Cox thinks that Bernardo Silva takes gold in the best player in the Premier League right now discussion. So let's have it. Personally, I think it's very clearly a Bere Eze, but that doesn't matter because today I'm the judge and we have a jury of Liam Tharm and Mark Kerry. Gang back together. Mark, you were away last week. I was. I yeah. was. I was in sunny Fuerteventura, reading all of the athletic articles that I uh, was yet to, to catch up on. That is the absolute truth. You went on holiday and read athletic articles. Yeah. When your hobby is your job, what else are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> so what is the high performance podcast? <laughs> well, you're looking and sounding well. It's good to have you back. Um, before we start the discussion about the best player in the Premier League right now, uh, Michael and I are going to discuss the late Terry Venables, who died over the weekend aged 80 we are a football tactics podcast and mostly we talk about contemporary tactics but in doing so we do like to look back to previous eras and highlight those in football history that had an impact on football tactics so Michael important I think to talk about Terry Venables in that context yeah I always thought of him as something of a contradiction he was on one hand a bit of an old school geezer from the east end of London but he was also a very progressive tactician became very admired across Europe for his work with with QPR, which sounds mad now, but he was, a, I mean, quite forward thinking. His use of a really aggressive offside trap was was very useful. And that attracted him to Barcelona. And of course, if, you, if you're given the Barcelona job, regardless of your nationality, you're regarded as being someone who can play very good football. And he won La Liga there. He took them to the European Cup final as well in 1986. But obviously most well known for his work with England leading up to Euro 96, where I think he probably overhauled England's style of play more than any other manager. And the context of England's senior team at that time was that they're preparing to host Euro 96, having not played at World Cup 1994. And he was overhauling the playing style within those circumstances. Do you think that almost helped him with a rebrand of the style of play? Because clearly what had gone before was simply not working. Yeah, I mean, it was it was both style and success that wasn't working before. I mean, there's been Graham Taylor, obviously, a lot of affection for him, fantastic manager at club level. But England didn't qualify for World Cup 1994. 
and they were playing a very direct, very long ball style of play, lots of big diagonal balls, defenders who couldn't really pass, midfielders who were just getting stuck in. And I think it's kind of taken for granted, obviously, international level. You can only work with the tools at your disposal, and England were producing some more exciting players. But across the pitch, I mean, he he brought in the likes of McManaman and Anderton, really exciting um, dribblers, generally out wide. His, his, his plan for the midfield was Redknapp and Gascoigne, which was a hugely technical combination. Eventually, he brought back in Paul Ince. And even at the back, you know, Gareth Southgate was a very different type of defender. He was almost a converted midfielder, very calm, very patient, not one to get stuck in. Gary Neville, he brought in after, I think, 19 Premier League games, which isn't that rare these days. You look at someone like Cole Palmer, for example. But at the time, people were like, how can you be picked for England after 19 games? So he had a lot of faith in these young technical players and also great faith in Alan Shearer. I mean, he he decided instantly Shearer was the right type of player for his football. Shearer went 13 games without scoring a goal for England leading up to Euro 96 and then scored five in five at the tournament itself. So his faith really paid off. And yet England played, I mean, you look back at that tournament and it wasn't all brilliant free-flowing football. The quarterfinal against Spain was a really bad game where England were lucky to go through on penalties. But there were some periods, I mean, particularly the 4-1 against the Netherlands and the second half of the game against uh, Scotland. Most famous for that Paul Gascoigne goal. But the game was changed by a halftime switch where he, he brought on Jamie Redknapp to boss things from midfield and took off Stuart Pearce, you know, hard tackling left back. Whenever England were in trouble, he always went for the more technical players. And I think that was, yeah, probably in stark contrast to what a lot of other managers had done. Yeah, I mean, those victories against Scotland and Netherlands still among England's most memorable tournament, major tournament victories. He actually featured in an episode that we did a couple of years ago about the Christmas tree formation. Venables was a uh, occasionally a purveyor of that, but it feels like that it would be wrong to focus entirely on that as Venables' system because uh, rather than set formations, it, from what you're saying and, and from the piece that you wrote on site this week, it's, it's better to focus on the core values of technical ability on the ball, movement off it, even into unusual areas at that time and, and sort of positional fluidity. Yeah, definitely. England had three or four different systems they could use. I think Gary Neville wrote on Twitter quite a nice message about Venables, said that he called him up, yeah, as I say, after half a season. And having always been a right-back for Manchester United, he then played right-side of centre-back, right-back, right-wing-back. That first goal against Scotland that Shearer heads home at the far post, Neville's playing as the right-side of centre-back in a three and gets to the byline and gets across it. And at the time, that wasn't how you played a back three. You played a back three with three centre-backs and the wing-back was doing the job of the full-back. It was quite an exciting time, I think, to be an England fan. Obviously, tournament on home soil, a great group of players, but also a manager who, who wanted to get the best from technical players rather than just scrappers. As you say, it makes me think, you know, after our discussion about David Beckham a couple of weeks ago and where would he play if he was transposed into a, a modern, you know, elite team? And I mean, Gary Neville, possibly the outside centre-back in a three these days. Yeah, uh, so, absolutely, yeah. You know, I mean, and as Piliqueta type player, right. I would say, yeah, perfect for that. Well, all sort of building this image of, of Terry Venables as uh, something of a, a visionary in terms of the history of, of tactics within the English game, certainly, and of course, having an impact across Europe as well. Some fantastic pieces on site. Alan Shearer with George Colkin and, and Michael's piece as well, expanding on some of the things that we've discussed uh, there. But now let's talk about Bernardo Silva. Michael, another piece that you've written this week suggests that you think he's the best player in the Premier League right now. And 
before engaging with the discussion and comparisons, these sorts of conversations are interesting. They're always things that gather engagement and a lot of opinions. When you talk about the best player in the Premier League at any given time, how fluid is this? Could there be three different best players in the Premier League over the course of a season? Is there a maximum of how many can be the best player in the Premier League or how long a player has to play well in order to make it in your eyes as as such? Well, I don't know. I mean, one one could discuss, but my starting point was if I was just building a team from scratch, if it was like a draft system, mm. I think he'd be the best one to have because I think there's other players who are at their best better than him, but I think they have some weaknesses if you're building a team. I mean, Erling Haaland, for example, fantastic centre forward, but he does constrain you. You can only play that way. You know, a lot of the top teams only half the time, really, they want to play with a centre forward. Haaland, if you've got him, you've got to play him that in that position. Kevin De Bruyne, I think, at his best, still the best player in the Premier League, but he does get a lot of injuries. He's played about 20 minutes this season. That's not entirely uncommon for him, sadly, going back over the course of his Manchester City career. And you've got other players like Mohamed Salah, who it's not that he's lazy, it's not that he doesn't work hard, but I think he needs to save his energy for certain situations now. And with Bernardo Silva, I mean, he's incredibly versatile. He doesn't really get injured. And he's really, really hardworking, whether it's pressing, whether it's tracking back. He can just do everything. Bernardo Silva, for me, is the player where he's not going to limit you in any way. He can play three or four different roles and he can just do a job in, in any part of the pitch. I find it really interesting that, and I think the analysis of footballers has improved a lot in recent times, but broadly throughout history, we've been mainly focused on what players do with the ball. Michael's three reasons for Bernardo being the player that he would select are nothing to do with technical ability. Hard working is a, is a psychological mental trait. Proneness to injury, nothing to do with anything technical. And versatility, which, you know, you could probably argue there's some aspects to it, but it's, it's not technical, is it? No, for sure. I mean, I guess I was, you know, starting by taking the 10 players who might be in consideration and then filtering down. I mean, I'm not going for like James Milner as the best player in the Premier League because he also ticks those boxes. But to be that level of technical talent, I mean, he's so good on the ball. He's, his first touch is fantastic. He's so good at turning past pressure. A brilliant passer. Doesn't give the ball away. And he's got all those qualities as well. I just think he's a complete all-rounder. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I, I put him as the, the player with the, the best footballing brain, if, if you recall, in, in episodes gone by um, when we were building our perfect footballer because he has... It's not just his versatility, is it? It's the, it's the fact that he is also one of the best within the different roles that he has. So... To Michael's point, um, of course, I looked at the numbers. Since he signed for Manchester City, I looked at the most minutes played in all competitions for Manchester City. And Bernardo Silva has played the most, 22,085 minutes in all competitions for Manchester City um, of any outfield player for City. So, I mean, a lot of players have, have come and gone in that period, of course. So it's it's going to be sort of skewed by that fact that he was there for, the, for that period, obviously. But to Michael's point, it shows not only his availability but the fact that he is called upon as one of the most trusted players in whatever position I'm sure we'll go on to the the exact roles that he fulfills as well I think in terms of midfielders and this is probably true more broadly across the pitch that we've we've gone into an era of of real specialists of players that have you know really obvious super strengths can do certain things really really well have real standout attributes and there's a lot of those and and Michael sort of explained it with some of the the City players that he's a really important kind of glue in, in that team and that I don't mean that to take away from his own individual brilliance but the fact that he offers 
so many solutions of where he can play. He's so incredibly two-footed. I know in terms of his, his shots, I'd look at the numbers and he comes out quite dominant on his left, but as a passer, he can play with either foot, can play a variety of passes with either foot. And just the result of it means that when he gets pressed from left or right, wherever he is across the pitch, that he's able to, to find a way out, to, to dribble or to find a pass. And it's great for City because I think they're going to be one of the teams that face the most different types of opposition and different types of defences that in Europe they'll face teams that will come out at them, that will press and have more possession. And obviously in the Premier League, a lot of the time they're facing sort of deeper, lower blocks and he can then be a person to have deep in the build-up when you are being pressed high to find a way out or to be part of those wide combinations to pick lock a, a deep line defence. I mean, calling him the, the glue is quite interesting there because there was a really good piece last winter actually from Sam Lee, our Manchester City writer, doing an interview with uh, Bernardo Silva. And he said that my job, honestly, is to make my teammates better because I know that with the players that we have up front, if the defenders and midfielders control the game with the players that we have with Kevin, De Bruyne, Erling Haaland, Jack Grealish, at the time, Riyad Mahrez, the chances of, of us winning the game are very big. So if we do our job properly and make them comfortable, give them balls to, to run onto and chances to score, we're going to win those games. So... He's sort of humble enough to to know that he is so technically proficient, but he knows that the ones who are more likely to to get the headline, and he's sort of wanting them to in that as well. The, the final thing I'll say on his ball retention, and, and Liam mentioned how sort of press resistant he is, that again, I've obviously looked into the numbers. And I, I went into uh, some data from Skill Corner and looked at all uh, midfielders' share of situations where they were pressured in possession and then how often they retain the ball after being pressured across all of last season in the Premier League. And Rodri, unsurprisingly, had the, the highest ball retention rate in the whole league. But uh, Bernardo Silva's 84% ball retention rate under pressure was well above the, the league average. And we just we know with his low centre of gravity, to your point, Liam, that you can sort of have perform those actions in really advanced areas where it could be the difference between getting a shot away or getting a um, or creating for, for someone else. But also in those central areas where you need to resist pressure and build up, he's also able to do that as well. So he's just got that that versatility. It's a big reason why in, in the knockouts when I was speaking to, to Sam Lee about this sort of earlier on in, in the calendar year that Guardiola would always play Bernardo and his, his more experienced, his uh, better controllers rather than sort of his more destructive players in those bigger games because he wants to balance, he wants to control. There was a period, I think, at, at the start of 2023 where it was sort of Grealish and Maris was always the wide combination in, in, in the Prem. And I think Maris and went and scored a hat-trick, didn't he? And I think one of the FA Cup Sheffield games United, uh, yeah. at Wembley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and yet still, um, obviously I know Maris then went on to leave, but Bernardo would be the player in the Champions League games because all of those actually sort of rolled together are just so essential that you need him in games of those significances. Michael, it was another a big performance from him in the game on the weekend against Liverpool. Which of the many roles that he can play did he show us on Saturday? Well, he played a role that I think was the same as what he did against Manchester United, where he basically did the De Bruyne role from the left. So he was the left side of number eight, but he was either overlapping or going into the channel and getting the ball in there and trying to dig up crosses for the players in the centre. And it's almost like he's been forced to fill in for everyone this season. He's kind of the replacement for Gundogan, who's gone to Barcelona. But then after De Bruyne's injury, he's he's had to play that role as well. And when Rodri was suspended against Arsenal, he played in the deep role. So he really can do everything in that midfield zone. So I was at this game and there's certain players who you appreciate more live. And for me, it's always the players who are physically slight, who can just deal with that pressure. 
when you sit in real life, it's just amazing the ferocity of Premier League games. And a little bit like Eden Hazard, I was always amazed how well he coped with that. Bernardo Silva, he's just, I mean, he is so small, but he can deal with it and he can get stuck in as well. And one of the, the things I included in, in the article I wrote about him was that his tackle percentage success rate has just ballooned over the years. It's bizarre. I mean, you, you look at that alone and he seems like a real kind of flimsy, continental, can't cope with the rough and tumble of the Premier League when he arrives. And now he's one of the most consistent tacklers. It's, it's incredible. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. What was he like at, at Monaco and before he jo- joined Manchester City? You know, we're watching him week in, week out in, in a variety of roles and, and generally playing a lot deeper than I believe he was when he first joined. Yeah, it was much more of a, a 10, I think, in that. I mean, it was a really, really good Monaco team, wasn't it, that, that won the league. They played closer to what the earlier iterations of Guardiola City did in terms of being more, more of a vertical side and having those, those quick wingers. We've seen Bernardo sort of play out wide on the wing, but much more sort of a playmaker, I think. He almost feels, I think the best way I can describe it is how how a lot of the Red Bull teams tend to use those sort of narrow players just off the strikers. So he's worked really well in that regard. And I, I wonder if his versatility has softened the, the blow of, of Gundogan's departure as well because of that, that it's a player that can sort of you know take on a few different roles that you then save money because you're not having to spend tens of millions of pounds on, on a direct replacement that you can find a solution. That's Guardiola in a nutshell though, right? Like to have a small squad with players who he knows can be positionally versatile within games, obviously, as we've seen with centre-backs coming to midfield and from Silva playing left-back against Aston Villa and Arsenal to right-wing in the, the second half against Arsenal. But within games, never mind between games, to have that positional versatility and the appreciation to fulfil those roles. The left-back to, to right-wing, I know that you wrote on this at the time, didn't you, Michael, was probably the most drastic in terms of the... Yeah, and especially because he's not a wide player. He doesn't have those kind of dynamic, sprinty qualities mm. you expect of someone to play out wide. And even just what he does in the centre, I mean, he's played as a number eight. He played pretty well as a false nine. I don't think it came naturally to him, but he did it. And he, he played in the defensive midfield role against Arsenal. Like their, their toughest game of the season, probably, in terms of away from home at the side. He challenged them for the title. Did he play well year. in that game? Yeah, he did. He was, he was, I mean, very deep, almost on top of the centre-back. It's clearly just told, like, to put your foot on the ball keep the tempo pretty uh, pretty slow. We don't want a back and forth game. And I mean, he's one of the most versatile players I can think of, really. And and again, it goes back to that. Usually you think of versatile players as like physical players who can just do a job anywhere. He is doing lots of completely different things. I mean, people talk about James Milner being versatile, but he kind of does the same thing wherever, if you know what I mean. Whereas Bernardo Silva, he's playing up front and he's creating or he's playing as a defensive <laughs> midfielder and he's kind of dictating the tempo. 
if he's playing wide, he can go down the go down the line. If he's playing on the left or drift inside from the right, I mean, he can just do everything. He's kind of what I expected more footballers in a Guardiola team to be like by this point. You know, the, the way Guardiola's put together his teams over the years, I thought by the time he got to City, he'd have like three or four players like Bernardo Silva. Whereas actually, he's got three or four players like Akanji, like centre-backs who can do a job anywhere. There's a, a great quote from Bernardo back in April. I think this might have been after they played Bayern Munich from a piece in The Guardian. And he said, when Guardiola's Barcelona era began, seeing players like Messi, Iniesta and Xavi gave him more strength to continue. Barcelona were the best team in the world and three of their best players were almost smaller than me. The most important thing in football is the head, the decisions the player makes. And it's kind of ironic because that's not how City play. Like at times they played four centre-backs and Rodri in front. And Rodri, if he was at Barcelona or Bayern under Guardiola, he would have been a midfielder played as a centre-back because that's what he did with Mascherano, with Jerry Martinez. And he's done that at times at City as well. So it's almost like five centre-backs there. So especially with Haaland... Some of the other players, De Bruyne, obviously so physical, physically capable. Even someone like Grealish is quite a big lad when you see him up close. So the fact that he's kept this going as a kind of, yeah, really diminutive player, a little bit like Guardiola in his playing days, who was tall but not quick, not covering ground, not physical. I think it's great. I, I'm pleased that they've got a player like that who's just pure technique and intelligence. Mm, yeah, and also not you know, a complete liability quite far from it out of possession. You know, players historically of his size and of his skill set would have probably just been a number 10 or a, or an inverted winger and not asked to do a huge amount without the ball. But not only is that more important than ever nowadays, Bernardo can absolutely step up to the plate. Yeah, Guadalupe gave him loads of praise after the Leipzig game. Um, he said that the reason that he played him in the role that he did to, to make these, these out-to-win Pressing movements where you know he's going from fullback to centre back to really force them uh, into central space and to force turnovers, and of course City absolutely took them apart in the first half. And that it's it's hard to measure sometimes, or there isn't always the the publicly available data to to sort of value that. But it's it's so valuable for how Guardiola wants to play, and it also I guess kind of looks straightforward sometimes. That you appreciate sort of the um, the physicality, the fitness that comes with it, as Mark mentioned, the the sheer volume that he plays and still plays in this intense way. Yeah, it's it's incredible, and I wonder how City would try to press. They didn't have him in there because Holland, as great as his physical profile is is really quick with the mark and a really good sort of sprinter and, and really good over short distances. But it's having that player that can do it for sixty, seventy, eighty, ninety minutes. One thing I'm interested in is that if you look on his FB ref page and you could look at Premier League starts in the last few seasons, there, there is one season, 21-22, where he started 33, made 35 appearances. But uh, in three of the last four completed seasons, he has started 23, 24 and 24 games. So a couple of injuries over the years, but broadly, he has been part of Guardiola's rotation system. And Liam, from what you said earlier, it felt like Pep's got to the point where he needs him for the biggest games, in the knockout games in particular. And I wonder whether that could be an issue down the line this season for Manchester City, with Gundogan having left. Are there the options to rotate in for Bernardo and for Manchester City to not lose too much with him resting as the fixture list grows later on this season? Yeah, possibly. I guess there's no, and this is the point when we speak about how unique he is as a player, that there's no real sort of like-for-like replacement. They brought in Nunez, who probably compares as sort of a dribbler and a ball carrier. Rico Lewis can definitely work well in those deeper areas and moving between sort of full-back and into midfield positions. And I think you sort of look at those as, if there's sort of a Venn diagram with Bernardo Silva in the middle, there's a few City players that might overlap in certain circles and can do different bits and pieces. 
Foden definitely has sort of similar characteristics when he plays in advanced areas and in the half spaces and how he likes to connect. Uh, and I think Julian Alvarez is, is becoming a similar player as well, someone that I, I sort of had earmarked as a real sort of number nine, but it's definitely looked good in, in deeper areas. And I think he's been taking City set pieces recently, admittedly in absence of De Bruyne, but that shows a, a real level of technical proficiency. So definitely not like for like, and they'd have to find ways to either build up differently, press differently, or, you know, rejig the structure. But yeah, his his uniqueness really stands out when you look at even in a team like City, you have so many different profiles that there's not really another one like him. It feels like the large discussion about his versatility, which is, to be clear, his skill, is still intrinsically linked to Pep Guardiola being his manager for the last five years. Michael, how many other managers across world football do you think would have had the vision or the demands to turn a player in Bernardo Silva when he joined Man City into what he is today? Yeah, I can't really see it because, you know, like I say earlier, I think football shifted away from that a little bit. I mean, even someone like Arteta's filling his team with really big physical players. I'm sure he would have appreciated Bernardo Silva, but who else is going to be playing him at left back? I mean, it's just incredible, really. A couple of datary questions for you, Mark. I mean, firstly, to what extent can we measure a player's versatility by the numbers? And rather than just saying we've seen him pop up in loads of different positions, how can we measure that? With great difficulty. I mean, what I could do is is start by, I mean, versatility just purely on position or, you know, role being asked to, to be fulfilled is is interesting to to look at it. And people will see quite frequently on site, we, we have a, a graphic that just shows the share across the pitch in different positions that, that a certain player has played. And typically, you'll see maybe two, three for, for certain uh, players. Rarely will you see a player fulfil eight different positions um, since he has joined a club. So yeah, since the 2017-18 season, we can go through left-back 1% of the, the time uh, since he's been at Manchester City. But we've what spoken a memorable about 1%. We, exactly, we've spoken about that uh, already. 7% at, at defensive midfield, 49% central midfield, 2% right midfield, 26% right wing, 3% left wing and 7%... Uh, as a striker, we sort of framed it more as a false nine. Actually, 5% at centre attacking midfielder as well. I do think it's interesting, uh, as you say, because if you were to try and benchmark him against someone else, who would you benchmark him against? Because the, the roles that he's being asked to fulfil each time are going to be so different. So if you look at his chances created on their own, is that going to really you know, compare reasonably to someone of a, of a similar ilk because then sometimes as we mentioned within the same game he'll be asked to be a defensive midfielder as well so what I like to do and we've spoken about it before is look at expected threat um, so open play expected threat which you know there's different ones possession value etc but essentially expected threat being actions that increase the team's likelihood of scoring a goal in the next few actions and I looked at it this was granted before the Liverpool game so one game away from a full data set but he had the highest expected threat per 90 of anyone in the City squad this season, 0.27 per 90. So again, wherever you put him, he's always going to be that player who's taking on the mantle. Michael mentioned it before in terms of that Kevin De Bruyne role. He does now seem to be the one to be taking on the responsibility to whether he's directing others by pointing where he wants it or pointing where it should go to advance the, the ball forward, progress the ball from whatever position he's starting in. So I think those more advanced metrics like expected threat are a probably the best way to try and quantify what he does because you can see that yeah. he's coming out on top rather than the the more basic statistics because how could you compare him with anyone else but himself where are you getting your expected threat numbers from mark can we do you get access to these coxie 
Very good question. I, get a bit of this? I, I forgot to give him a shout out. This is from Mark Arstats. Um, he's got a really oh, good website. Legend of the game. Legend of the game. Very active on on Twitter. His page. I would encourage anyone to follow him. Yeah, that's from him. I should have given him a shout out. So thank you for the reminder. Bit of a weird thing, but what you're talking about there, benchmarking against others in your position to bring out sort of statistical analysis of of a player's performance. I mean, it's everywhere these days, particularly in o- online discourse of football. You know, your FB ref. Um, scouting reports, your green bars, your red bars, your your radars, whatever it could be, it's it's actually quite important now for a player who wants to do well, who wants to be recognised, to be seen to have good numbers, ideally good radars to compare well against others in their position for important metrics that pertain to that position. Now, this is not a problem for Bernardo Silva because he's apparently the best player in the Premier League right now. But it's interesting to me that, let's say, a League One player that was incredibly versatile for whatever reason and inhabiting a lot of different positions on the pitch, it, it could actually be quite damaging purely in that sense of what are you comparing them to? Are you comparing them unfairly because you're using data from when they were playing centre midfield to compare them to a, a left back or a winger? It's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah, and it's something I think we've spoken about before on this podcast of trying to, if you're thinking of it from a recruitment perspective, trying to forecast how a player is within a certain role, within a certain system, within a certain position, to how they maybe would fulfill a completely different tactical structure for the team that you know, you're know you recruiting for. So it is really difficult. I think, yeah, as you say, the lower maybe you go down the leagues where it's maybe not as obvious in the data or by eye in terms of the exposure of the, the player, how versatile or how strong they are. But at the moment, yeah, you can't quantify, you know, Bernardo Silva's balance, his speed of thought, his his vision, his ability to to direct the play, as I mentioned before. So, until we have those sort of metrics, then uh, then yeah, it can be quite difficult. There's quite a lot of blind spots in data in general, which is why, as much as anything, you have to appreciate the limitations that it, it might bring. And this is a perfect example of that. And then kind of use other means by which to to analyze a player, which of course is the old fashioned eye test. This is a very slight tangent, but you look at how he works in the Portugal setup and it's probably a shame that they don't and haven't been more built around the sort of creative attack and midfield talent they've got and Bernardo Silva in particular because it's been so set around Ronaldo and there was obviously the ironic situation in the World Cup where he didn't start, Gonzalo Ramos did and went and scored a hat-trick and then it's the broader discussion about when's the right time to keep building around a player, when do you need to tweak and change things. You now see that within City of maybe a better way of adapting to a striker and not sort of coming at the expense of those more creative players that you've got to play off play off of them. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. 
so many good threads to, to previous episodes that we've done. I mean, when we were talking about his style and his qualities at the top of the show, I couldn't help thinking about our episode on dribblers and dribbling and the fact of Bernardo Silva being, to my eyes, one of the best dribblers in the Premier League, but not in a classic sense of a of a 1v1. He's going to go past you every single time. If anything, sometimes you, you want him to try and do that more, given his technical quality. But it's more about incredible ball control, use of his body, low centre of gravity, and it's tight technical dribbling, isn't it? To not lose the ball and to move it on rather than necessarily to beat a, a man one-on-one. And the other throwback to a recent podcast, he loves talking tactics. He likes expressing himself and, and trying to explain how he's always a good post-match interview, tries to break down the game as best he can. He's obviously, as you would be, pretty influenced by Pep. And he said, just recent quotes from the game against Liverpool. Last season, I was playing on the right, Jack on the left. We're a bit more controlled, not as direct. It gives more on one, 1v1s, on counters, but lose a bit of game control. So sometimes good and sometimes not. But the team is doing really well. If the players change, the team setup also changes. But we're doing really well and hopefully improve when our injured players are back. I can also play on the right again. A lot of options depending on the game and what the manager wants. Xabi Alonso is springing to mind, Michael, because we spoke about him the other day when we talked about surprise league leaders, his Leverkusen side. We talked about, and it's always exciting to try and predict which current players might end up being elite managers as Xabi Alonso seems to be on the pathway towards. Do we think Bernardo might be similar? Yeah, well, he could be. Seems like a bright lad, very good language skills, I gather. Came to England with a brilliant grasp of English. I remember everyone being impressed by that. So communication, very important, of course, in management. So maybe Portugal probably produce more good managers than any other country, you know, relative to the size of the population. So, yeah, quite possibly. It was a big deal last season as well, wasn't there, that Gundogan was doing his coaching badges and I think working with the City 16. So I'm sure that, sure that pathway is there. I mean, it's, it's an obvious thing to say here of just how much his different roles have also, as well as having Pep Guardiola as your manager, has instilled that increased tactical understanding. And I, I do go back to this Sam Lee piece where Silva himself has said, he said, I started as a right winger, played as a false nine, played as a 10, eight, and even sometimes six. So when I play as a right winger, I know where I want my midfielder to be. I know where I want my six to, to be to come and help me. It's it's just in the way that I understand the game that I think I've changed quite a lot since he's obviously come to Manchester City. So you know, typically attacking players in particular can be quite selfish, can't they? Because they're just thinking about Erling Haaland, Erling Haaland wanting to score goals, etc. But to sort of feel like he's kind of positioning players himself on a tactics whiteboard shows that he's already thinking a couple of steps ahead, which I think just speaks volumes of his, his intelligence. It would also completely fit my theory about central midfielders going on to become head coaches disproportionately. So it pushes my agenda, which is all that matters. Well, if he's only a central midfielder 46% of the time. <laughs> it counts as a half point. I think it's also worth pointing out that Bernardo Silva has an excellent sentence on his Wikipedia page, which is Silva has a French bulldog named John Stones, <laughs> named after the footballer. <laughs> excellent. He's also got the highly important, incredible competitive streak and will to win, Mark, which was evident in a, a moment that you've still not forgotten when he refused to clap the league champions Liverpool in their guard of honour. Yeah, it, it's just poor form, isn't it? <laughs> as much as anything. I don't know much about his character, but I do think that that was uh, maybe lacking in sporting integrity, shall we say. Well, I think you're showing personal bias here, if anything, because uh, none of us cared about that. Isn't all bias personal? <laughs> well. Uh, okay, so let's finish off with a bit of fun. Michael says if he was starting a new team, a new franchise 
God forbid, in the Premier League. And he had to fill a squad and he was allowed to pick a player from any team. He would pick Bernardo Silva right now. Uh, Liam, would you pick Bernardo Silva? Yeah, I think so. Mark? From City, yes. Yes, this season, yes. Well, what if there were four teams and we were doing a draft system and I picked Bernardo Silva first and you weren't able to pick Bernardo Silva? Can we talk about some other Premier League players that you might try and build a team around? Michael? Well, maybe Rodri. I mean, I think he's been excellent over the last couple of years. But I do think he's one of those players who, just when I think he's right at the top level, he does make some silly mistakes, I think. And he did get sent off in that game and missed the Arsenal fixture, which, again, was City's biggest of the season. So just little things like that, sometimes I think he lets himself down a bit. But he's he's a great player, Rodri. And that wasn't even on-pitch stuff as well, wasn't it? That was just a silly. moment of madness rather Completely than just silly. two poor tackles. Yeah. But... What about you, Liam? I think there's always a temptation to build around sort of central midfielders because they're the players that tend to be most involved in the game and it's literally in the middle of the teams and you can fit things around that. And I sort of went through the the big six teams and picked out who I who I'd want and most of them were sort of central midfielders. So Enzo Fernandez was one that, that stood out, James Madison, albeit more of a more of a ten, um, but players that you could trust with being sort of the creative hub and having a lot of burden of building the attack. The two really that stood out for me were looking at Liverpool now, I thought Alisson would be like the goalkeeper I'd most want to build a team around, which I don't know if you can technically build a team around a goalkeeper, but just his sheer quality, the longevity of how good he's been a shot stopper, 1v1, his ability to defend the box and take the sting out of games. And then at centre-back, I'd go for Saliba just because... He's got so much quality aerially on the floor when he gets pulled wide 1v1. He's a great solution to the fact that you can get away with having a press that doesn't always work or maybe you get played in behind and he's got so much recovery pace. His ability to sort of backwards defend and run towards his own goal, he's great. In the same way that Bernardo Silva is versatile, he's kind of like what this modern fullback's now becoming of now back to the big guy and the physical player. So it's that, again, I think that versatility sort of runs through the players that you'd want to build a team around. I mean, with absolutely no agenda, I would say that Trent Alexander-Arnold has to be in with a, a shout. And I think it was kind of shown as much. That was why Liverpool changed. And it was Pep Linders who encouraged the change tactically towards the end of last season to to maximise the strengths of Trent Alexander-Arnold. And we can talk about his defensive uh, weaknesses, shall we say. I actually thought he had quite a good game against Doku on um, on Saturday, but... Maybe not the strongest one-on-one, but to, to maximise his strength. And if this exercise is building the team around a, a player's strengths, then um, there's few players who have got the the technique, the the vision and the execution in his passing, aside from maybe Kevin De Bruyne in the Premier League, than Alexander-Arnold. And we're seeing that um, at the moment this season, which is why Liverpool have got an, an uptick in form. Well, I, I mean, I'm actually going for Bernardo Silva because I'm, I'm not building it around him. I mean, I'm going for Bernardo Silva because he can do anything. Mm. So regardless of what other players you can have, he can fit in anywhere. Mm. I mean, I, I love Alexander-Arnold and I like him in the new role, but the same with Haaland. Players like that, everyone else then has to operate around him. Whereas Bernardo Silva, for me, can do anything. You can chuck him in any position in any team. He can probably do a job. And that's why I'd go for him. That's annoyingly good logic. Uh, surprised to see no mention for Kobe Mainu. <laughs> And in fact, there's a great piece on site breaking down why there is such excitement about the Man United teenager written by uh, Karl Anker after a very impressive debut over the weekend. Great fun to talk to you guys about Bernardo Silva. What a season he's having. And it'd be great to hear from you guys as well listening. Uh, You can tweet us. You can comment on the specific page of this episode on the podcast page on the Athletic app. Make sure you do sign up to The Athletic today as well. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics will be the best place to go to get a discount on your annual subscription. We will, of course, be back again next week and we look forward to it. Thanks for listening. 
The Athletic.